Well, good afternoon. Good to see you guys here. Uh, welcome to Beyond. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm one of the shepherds on staff, Shepherds for Young Professionals, and it's, it's good to have you guys in this room as we continue our conversation through the book of Daniel. Uh, but let's pray. Let's open up in a word of prayer here before we dive in. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your text, the scriptures. Um, Lord, we just pray that our time today would be fruitful. Uh, Lord, as we explore some confusing prophetic literature, we just ask for your spirit of discernment and your presence in this room. Lord, we just pray that we would walk away uh, feeling like we've learned more about your character and feeling confident in the ways you work in our world. Father, we love you and we thank you for the space to be able to do this. In your name we pray, amen. All right, well, today we enter into a portion of Daniel that is honestly tough. Uh, you know, as, as we planned out beyond, I got, to, I got to be the one who picked the text that different people get to teach on. And uh, part of doing that is that I picked every short passage for myself. So the short portion of Daniel 7, Son of Man, this short portion here, and then I'm taking chapter 12, which is probably the shortest chapter. But in doing so, I have uh, gifted myself with the most, honestly, probably the most difficult text to go through. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Let me read it for us here in its entirety. It's only seven verses, so it'll be, or excuse me, it's only uh, 27 verses, 20 through 27. Uh, so seven verses, I can do math. Uh, so let me, let me read this for us here. This is Daniel 9, and we're going to start in verse 20. Daniel 9, starting verse 20, it says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Clear, right? Clear as day. <laughs> Clear as mud, right? Um... The text we, we, we enter in today is, uh, it is difficult. It is tough. Uh, one 
commentator Joyce Baldwin in her commentary on Daniel states that this is the most challenging portion of the Old Testament. And uh, this is the words of James Montgomery, another scholar looking at Daniel. And he says that Daniel 9, 20 through 27 is the dismal swamp of Old Testament criticism. The dismal swamp. Uh, I don't know if I love using that word to refer to scripture, but I, I think he's getting at something here with this idea of a swamp and that this text is something we can get bogged down in and almost lost within. Um, if you were to go and visit all the commentaries and the journals and the scholarly work on this text, it is easy, very easy to get lost. And I can, ex- I can say that from experience as well from researching this text, that it can feel like a swamp. And a part of that is that there, there's really no consensus or majority view on this text. Usually when there's texts that are, are hard for us in our scripture, there's usually a majority view that we can look to. There's something where we're like, hey, there's all these other options, but this is the one most people have held to. This text doesn't have that. Um, almost every view we're going to look at is in some sense the minority view because there is no majority Uh, There is so many different ways to read this and come across it. And so the first thing we have to do as we approach this text is hold our interpretations loosely. Uh, Especially as we enter into this room, as we enter into this conversation here, is that there may be us, maybe some of us who are listening, who already have a whole system built into our mind of a way of interpreting Daniel 9, 20 through 27, And today I'm going to ask that you just hold that a little loosely uh, because we are walking into something that, again, is difficult. And if you're walking into this conversation and you you don't have a view on this text other than you just heard it and it sounds confusing, uh, you actually might be in a better position uh, to be shaped by the different possibilities today. But we're going to hold that loosely. We're We're going to walk to the text humbly. And admit that this is biblical prophecy, and it is difficult. It is difficult. But this does not mean that our endeavor is hopeless, okay? It does not mean that we are journeying into the unknown, into nothingness, and that we're going to walk away feeling uh, dissatisfied with our conversation today. So I, I, I want us to be set up to realize this, this will be a confusing text we might not walk away with a surefire answer of a hill we can die on, but hopefully we'll add some clarity as we look at it. So what I first want to do is I just want to make observations, pretty, um, pretty brief observations. And uh, hopefully all of you have a handout in front of you that can guide you through the slides. I saw a few of you cheating and looking ahead. Um, that will be noted. Uh, but uh, I would just encourage you to, to, yeah, you can take notes on that and uh, probably try to stick with where we're at and uh, don't rush ahead. Um, but let's, let's just make some quick observations here just on the text itself without really trying to build too much of a meaning yet, but just things that just stand out here. So the first thing, as we look through, we're going to actually go to 24. Now, not that 20 through 23 isn't important, but 20 through 23, we get the setup that... Um, we just witnessed Daniel's prayer that we talked about last week with Kristen, where, where Daniel is confessing on behalf of his people. He realizes that Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years should be coming close to an end, and he wants to uh, make sure that that's what happens, that it comes to an end, and he confesses before God. 
And then after he's praying, we have the scene where Gabriel, um, who had given him some insight into visions before, shows up and says, Daniel, I have more insight to you. Um, and uh, I love this. It says, I've come to tell it for you, for you are greatly loved. <laughs> I love that. There's just that little nugget there of just a reminder of, Daniel, you are, you are greatly loved. So then once we proceed into to verse 24, this is where we get into the prophetic portions here. So verse 24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. It says, to finish transgressions, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring an everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophet, and anoint a most holy place. So these 70 weeks are being decreed for this purpose. And so we're looking for these six outcomes to happen from the 70 weeks okay so these 70 weeks are decreed about your people here's what you're hoping for as conclusions and outcomes of what god is going to do um and our brain is probably already rushing to where we think this might be uh fulfilled and uh that's good that's okay but this is just off on the set what we're going to look at now something you want might want to take a note of in your uh, in your notes is that that phrase there in verse 24 70 weeks are decreed for you is an interpretation of the hebrew right now the 70 weeks could be read as 70 weeks or it could be read as 77s okay that word in hebrew um, can be translated either as a week so because it's a set of seven days or it could just be the number seven, okay? So keep that in mind because throughout today, I'll constantly be referring to as either the, the weeks slash sevens, okay? So just keep that in mind there as well, that this could be 70 weeks or 70 sevens are decreed about your people. So these are what we are hoping for to be uh, su- successful through this vision. This is the six outcomes. So whenever we reference this, This is what we're looking for, okay? 24. We move on to verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or there shall be seven sevens, okay? Seven weeks or seven sevens. So in verse 25, we have uh, this idea of an anointed prince or an anointed one, okay? So just briefly getting into a little bit of interpretation here. Um, We are first mentioned here of the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if we uh, know our timeline of our Bible, we know that that Daniel is uh, here at the beginning portions of the Medes and Persians. And later a uh, Persian ruler will arise named Cyrus. And Cyrus will give the command to the Israelites to go home and rebuild their city, rebuild the temple. And you can find that account in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, or as we split it up into two separate books of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. But you can find that decree. And so um, it is possible this is what verse 25 is looking at. So we are, we are getting into a little bit of interpretation here. Um, but we're going to consider that this might be what Daniel's looking forward to, that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 
Well, around 538 or 539 B.C. is when Cyrus gives the order to the Jewish people to return home and rebuild. So we, we might be given a starting point for the rest of this chapter, for the rest of this prophetic vision. Again, we're going to hold everything loosely, but um, this could be a starting point. The next portion there is it says that this will be until the time of an anointed prince. There shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. So a question we might ask is, is Cyrus an anointed one in this verse? Because we do have passages throughout Scripture that refer to Cyrus as an anointed one. Your example there is Isaiah 45. Um, Isaiah 45 follows this um, this long kind of back and forth of what's called the songs of the servant, where you have Israel is once referred to as the servant, Cyrus is the servant, some sort of messianic figure that we as followers of Jesus would say is certainly Jesus. When we look at passages like Isaiah 53, is also the anointed one. So we also have multiple anointed ones, okay? Um, that word there in Hebrew, uh, Mashiach, where we get the idea of Messiah, uh, has no definitive article, okay? So there's no the in front of it, so it's not the anointed one that we're looking forward to, it's just an anointed one, okay? So it's possible that this is in reference to Cyrus, that he is an anointed one in this verse. Um, So again, we're we're considering this, okay? We're considering this. Um, so we, we follow along, and it says, um, then for 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, it shall be built again with squares and moats. So probably the it is probably the temple or the city of Jerusalem shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time, in a troubled time. In verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, or the 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city in the sanctuary. Okay, and then it goes on. An end, and there shall be war. So in verse 26, we see now we have 62 weeks, or 62 sevens. So if we're, this is Bible math class, okay, which is math is probably my least favorite subject, so this is really fun for me. But if we're walking it through, we've been given uh, a set of sevens. So there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens, and now we're given 62 sevens or 62 weeks, okay? So at this point, we would add that up to a 69 sevens or 69 weeks. And at the 62 weeks or sevens, we have an anointed one, and we have this anointed one being cut off. Now, that cutting off could potentially mean that they die. It could potentially mean they're outcast, or um, we don't know. It, that, that phrase there for cut off could mean a bunch of different things, but it potentially means that this anointed one from the 62 weeks uh, could, could lead to death. The other thing we also need to know is that this does not need to be the same anointed one from verse 25, okay? Uh, It could be a different person. So we could have Cyrus be the anointed one from the first set of sevens, 
and have a different anointed one here in the 62 sets of seven or weeks, okay? I promise you we will make sense of this, okay? Um, And then after that, we have the prince or the people of the prince. Again, that doesn't even have to be the same prince from verse 25, who comes and destroys the city in the sanctuary, and it shall end with a flood, and there will be war, desolations are decreed. So we're walking through, and what there are some things here that we feel like we can kind of start building up in our mind, that the word going out is about Jerusalem being rebuilt, which we see happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, we have an anointed one who may potentially be Cyrus giving this call to go and rebuild the city. And then it tells us that this will go on for a troubled time. And that troubled time, as, as New Testament people, we look at, at that as what is called the intertestamental period. So that period between the closing of the Old Testament canon, or what we have in our Old Testament, the books, uh, and that long period of silence by God up until Jesus. That long period of time where we don't have uh, scripture being created or, um, or moments that are being rec- recorded in scripture happening. It's that long gap in our Bible, um, what you may refer to as the troubled time. And then we have the 62 weeks, the anointed one being cut off, the people, the prince coming and destroying the city and sanctuary. So now in verse 27, we have, and he, again, here's what's the problem. We have all these pronouns of people we're not given identity to. So who's the he? Is it the prince? Is it the anointed one? We don't know. It says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or one seven. (laughs) And for half of the week or half of the seven, He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay? So verse 27 introduces a new week or a new seven. So if we're doing our math, we have the seven weeks or the seven sevens. We have the 62 weeks or the 62 sevens. That gives us 69. And now we have, a, we have one seven, or one week, which now gives us the 70 that is decreed in verse 24. Okay, the 70 weeks, or 77. Uh, we asked this question, is the he, the prince, an anointed one? We're not sure, okay? We're not sure yet. And we also have the break in the week, or in the seven, halfway through, which leads to a pause in sacrifice and offerings. So, our summary, and these are just our observations on the text so far, our summary of that is that we have a total of 70 weeks or sevens, one set of the se- one set of sevens, okay, is set off by the command to rebuild. Then we have a set of 62 sevens, which, fo- uh, which follows, and there'll be difficult times, it leads to anointing one being cut off, and a prince bringing destruction. Then we have a final one seven or week that leads to a covenant alliance and an abomination set up. So you see the total there, and you see this weird chopping up of the number 70. So the first thing we have to consider is the possibility that these numbers are symbolic. And um, usually when we say something symbolic in Scripture, there's a little bit of of a tightening that happens in our body. Uh, or a bit of a tension, because symbolic sometimes makes it feel like 
it doesn't have meaning or that it doesn't have a literal meaning to it. But there's something we have to consider that if there's these weird ways to tell us seven sevens or seven weeks, that there's something supposed to be uh, symbolic about this using the number seven, which has a symbol of completeness, of wholeness. And we have that constantly being repeated throughout. It is possible that the 70 weeks is a, a literal number, which would lead us to about 490 years. Um, so those are things we just have to hold. And as we dive into some of the possible interpretations, we'll talk about uh, the attempts to uh, set these numbers out as literal um, numbers that should take us from one date to the next and as symbolic numbers, which are just looking at periods of time in different ways. One way for us to consider this is that Jeremiah's prophecy tells us it'll be 70 years. And uh, though Daniel hopes for that, that gets in a way extended or as though that 70 years meant something else. So there is a possibility for some symbolism. And Kristen did a lot of heavy lifting for me last week and mentioning that this is um, the reminder of the Jubilee, that this was the failure of the Israelites to give rest to the land um, and the failure on their sins that it needed, the land needed its time to rest, and that there is a, um, uh, a set of um, punishments labeled in Leviticus 26 of what would happen if they failed the covenant. And you will see uh, a, a bunch of sevens in there. You will have telling you that there will be punishment seven time fold, or sevenfold. Um, so there's, there's a symbolic nature to these sevens, uh, but it could also be a literal thing for us to look at. All right, so let's look at some possible interpretations. So the first one I want us to look at is just considering how did people in Jesus' day understand this text? So when I'm talking about Second Temple Jewish interpretations, that's the period of time that we have leading up to Jesus and also after Jesus before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So that's the period of time people call it the second temple period. Um, and it's the time of the temple that's been rebuilt uh, by Herod and leading up to its destruction in 70 AD. So just think of the time before Jesus. So a study of how they would have read Daniel 9 leads us to believe that the different Jewish sects would have thought that they could use this text to discover the time of the son of David showing up. So they were looking at Daniel 9, and they were trying to do the math. They were trying to do what we're trying to do today to figure out when the son of David was supposed to show up. And by Jewish sects, I mean the things like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, and the Essenes. Um, that there was these different groups of Jewish people, and even within those groups, there's, there's all sorts of diversity of interpretation. But as an overall statement, we can say that they were reading this text and believing that it could lead to understanding when the Son of David was supposed to come up. And they all had different starting points. Some of them did start with the, dec the decree by Cyrus in 538 or 539 BC, but some of them had it set up for when Herod decided to rebuild the temple and add to it and make it look a little nicer. And so they have different starting points, and they have also different expectations for what those six outcomes were supposed to look like. Um, 
The Essenes, of which the Qumran community, so the community who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which is like one of the greatest discoveries that we have, that group of community, who's most likely a part of them, uh, were especially heavy on messianic anticipation. So during the time of Jesus, this group thought that their math was adding up to lead them to believe that, that the Messiah was supposed to come around this time, that a messianic figure was supposed to arrive. And of all the groups, they were definitely uh, leaning into this text the most and anticipating some sort of um, uh, action by God to set up these six outcomes. But what we also have is we have a shift in perspective. So uh, when you look at the six outcomes, they look great. They sound like things we would be hoping for from the Old Testament, and we would consider that to be an optimistic view of what was supposed to happen, even with all the pessimistic stuff in that section, right? The, the abomination, the, uh, the destruction. I mean, there's negative things happening here, but they tended to lean on the optimistic up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and in 135 AD when the Romans crush the Bar Kokhba revolt, okay? So at that point, after that, they start really leaning into the pessimistic interpretations of this passage, and some of the messianic portions start to dwindle away from reading Daniel 9. So this is important for us to consider. Um, just, you know, as, as we read our text, it's always good to know what were some of the people the most, who are the most close to Scripture and studying it and closest to this time period would have read. And it's important to know that they did have messianic expectations for it at the beginning and were believing they could use this to calculate. Um, this slide we'll come back to we'll potentially come back to so what i want to do is um, i want to look at some of the possible interpretations so as i said there are there's no majority view okay (laughs) but there are some important views for us to look at for how to to really hash this out and what i want to do is we're going to look at three of those views and even within those views there are different opinions, but we're going to use these as kind of umbrellas to look at what are the three main ways for interpreting this text, okay? So the first one, and what we'll do is we'll go through, we'll kind of explain it, and then we'll look at the strengths and weaknesses of each one. So this first one is the Antiochus perspective, and this holds that the timeline is fulfilled through the events around the Maccabean revolt. So for us as Christians, that's a part of history that we sometimes leave out because it's not in our Old Testament, and we don't hold the books that detail this to us as part of Scripture. And so we often don't think about the Maccabean Revolt, uh, which is where we get the, the holiday of Hanukkah. And so we have at this moment um, uh, an interpretation that says that Daniel is looking forward towards these events as a way to say God is even here and amidst this portion of history and is doing something there. So in this perspective, Cyrus is the anointed one of verse 25 who gives the command to go and rebuild. And that's that first set of sevens. Uh, then we have the 62 sevens with the anointed one who is cut off. 
And this interpretation says that the person who's the anointed one is the Jewish high priest Onias III, who was murdered in 171 BC for wanting to prevent the Hellenization of his people. He didn't, he, at this point, you have this cultural clash in Judaism where uh, the spread of Greek culture, or what we would call Hellenization, was starting to creep into Jewish thought. And uh, this was a battlefield of, are we going to embrace this way of thinking, or are we going to reject it? And Onias was the high priest at the time who wanted none of this, who was like, no, we're, we're Jewish, we need to hold to this. Um, and so this perspective says that it's his death which is the anointed one being cut off. Um, then when we have in, uh, in verse um, 27 of Daniel, this conversation about a covenant, that this covenant refers to the alliance between Antiochus and the traitorous, that's First Maccabees, the book that details the Maccabean revolt and all that surrounding that. Uh, that's their, their language. The traitorous Jews who embraced so Antiochus was a Greek ruler who um, comes into the temple, and this is where we get the abomination language. That's what this interpretation would say here in Daniel, that he sets up an unclean sacrifice in the temple, and he erects a statue to Zeus within the temple. And you have at this, I mean, it is a great sin and tragedy to the Jewish people at the time. Um, and so this view is saying, hey, if, if you look at what Daniel's talking about, these things line up really well, and it's potentially that, that Daniel's looking at this event, and he's telling his people, this is what's going to happen, but you need to know God is still working within this. So there's some strengths to this view. Uh, the historical characters and timeline match well with the text. Uh, of the three that we're going to look at, uh, I would argue, and, and this perspective would argue, that the characters of who these people are supposed to be, of the anointed ones and the prince, line up pretty well in this way. There's not a lot of hoops you have to jump through to, to connect these characters and timelines when it comes to the other perspectives. It has a unified story, so you don't have long gaps between things. You have a natural... Uh, gap between the different sets of seven and 62 sevens, but you have a, a kind of unified story here of, uh, of Cyrus and Antiochus and Onias. Like these are historical characters that we're seeing this story played out. We also have textual evidence that Second Temple Jewish leaders saw these events as fulfillment, even if partial of the text. And so we have them reflecting on Daniel 9 saying, oh my goodness, this is it coming true. But also recognizing, and we'll get to this a little bit, that the nine out or the six outcomes don't really come into place, right? We don't see an end to transgression or an end to sin or atonement or any of that happening. Uh, but the rest of it ends up well here. And we'll say this, while each interpretation has to twist the numbers a bit, uh, this interpretation might be jumping through the least amount of hoops, okay? Uh, it's maybe having to do the least amount of legwork to fit the numbers in the story. But there are weaknesses. Um, six outcomes find little to no fulfillment from these historical events, which is why a group like the Qumran community, would, who certainly didn't like what happened with the Maccabean Revolt, 
would look at that and be like, that wasn't what we were hoping for. Like that was not, that was not it. And we don't see the six outcomes of verse 24 take place or set up because of this event. Okay. So that, that's its weakness dealing with that. And there is a lack of messianic message and Jesus seems to have no place in this interpretation. Uh, this is interpretation that um, most like secular scholars would hold to, but you also have evangelicals who will hold to this perspective. But this is uh, an easy perspective to hold if you don't want to put Jesus within it. So those are some of our weaknesses here. And we'll go back to this one as well. But um, this is the next one, which is, I'm putting a lot into this one, okay? This is the historical and symbolic messianic perspective. Um, and I'm putting a lot here. You can almost break this. You should, I probably should have broken this up into to almost two or three separate ideas, but I wanted to keep it succinct for us here. Uh, so in this perspective, you have an adding of the seven weeks and the 62 weeks to form one long period of 69 weeks that go from the time that the word goes out to rebuild the temple to the coming of Jesus. You have different starting points, depending on if you take the numbers literally or symbolically. So that's where you get the difference between historic and symbolic. So you'll have different starting points here. You'll have different ending points with Jesus as well. Uh, It could be that the 69 weeks end at Jesus' birth. It could end by his baptism. You have differing opinions here as well. But the, the, the main point of this is to say that the, those weeks um, get summed up in Jesus's arrival, whether it's his birth or his ministry arrival. This perspective is looking at the coming of Jesus. Uh, in this perspective, Jesus is the anointed one who is cut off by his death, that his death is the, the anointed one being cut off. The destruction that we get detailed uh, is the destruction of the temple in 70 80, which Jesus also predicts in a lot of his prophetic um, conversations with his disciples. Jesus talks about the coming destruction of the temple. So his perspective would say that's what happens at the temple in 70 80. Then you have differing views about those half week details, that last set of seven. Um, some will say it could be something that we're waiting for far off into the end times. Or it could be about the conquering of Jerusalem in 135 AD. So this perspective, if we were to sum it up, is that it's looking at Daniel 9 um, with a messianic perspective. This is pointing towards the Messiah. And we're going to have to work out some of the other details about the temple and the, the week and the half week. And that's where you'll get differing opinions there. But this is the historic and symbolic messianic perspective this is pointing towards jesus and that's where we see its strengths is that if we're looking at the death and resurrection of jesus and we're looking at the six outcomes we would nod our heads in agreement and say yeah these are these are things that uh, are fulfilled through jesus even if it's um, initiated by jesus or inaugurated by jesus and maybe hasn't quite completely happened we know that hey, we're looking forward to a lot of these things mentioned here in the six, an end to transgression, an end to sin, an atonement. Um, So this ties in well with the six outcomes. 
It also aligns with historically messianic interpretations of the text. So when we think about our Second Temple Jewish friends, uh, this, this lines well with that way of looking at it. Um, and though the details are loose, and what I mean by that is we don't have as, as precise of lining up with each character as we do in some of the other views, the main idea connects well to the overall message of the text, that God is going to do something to bring about these six outcomes. And we would think, yeah, that, that's going to happen to the Messiah. Some of its weaknesses, uh, the timelines and starting points have to twist the numbers, even if they take it symbolically. Um, If you start in 538, 539 BC, and you take the numbers literally to mean 490 years, you're not quite getting to Jesus' birth. You, You can do the math real quickly in your head. You're not quite there. Pretty close, all things considered. But some of the timeline stuff, you kind of have to do some, some hoop jumping. Um, and this is actually an important point here, as we, even as we look at the other interpretation, is that though there are historical messianic interpretations of this passage, Daniel 9 is never used by any New Testament author to appeal to Jesus' coming. And that's actually really important as we think about this text, is there are a lot of other moments of the Old Testament that the gospel writers and Paul will take and point back and say, yeah, that was telling us about Jesus. So think of Isaiah 40, the voice calling out in the wilderness, or, um, I mean, all of Isaiah 53, or, uh, or Psalm 110. Like, you have all these texts that the, the authors will use to be like, this is telling you about Jesus. This one never gets used. Now, that could be an argument from silence, just to say it hasn't been used doesn't mean we can't use it. But it is important to say, well, they weren't really using this text, the New Testament, to point to Jesus. So maybe it's not quite telling us that. Potentially. potentially. So just something to keep in mind. All right, our last perspective is what we're going to call the dispensationalist perspective. Um, so the dispensationalist perspective, like the Messianic view, uh, it's Jesus' arrival or his death— again, there's debate, is set after the 69 weeks. So it's similar to the Messianic there with the 69 weeks leading up to his arrival. In dispensationalism, you have a sharp distinction between the church and Israel. So in dispensationalism, uh, which is a uh, a system of theology that it's kind of a big, broad umbrella to look at uh, Scripture and salvation, uh, Israel and the church are separate. So um, in dispensationalism, you won't get a lot of looking at Old Testament prophecies and tying them to the church. So there's a distinction between uh, God's people, the Old Testament, and this church age now of what God is doing here. So there's a distinction. And so in that distinction, the gap between 62 weeks and the final week the church age. So that last week that we have there in Daniel 9, uh, dispensations will say there is a gap uh, that we call the church age. That would be what we are in right now. So the 2,000 plus years of church history, that's the gap. Um, so the last portion of the text, that final seven or that final week, is removed and it's placed in eschatological, fun word, uh, future. So it's placed towards the end times. And that's 
it's something like the, uh, the seven years of tribulation. So the last week represents that seven years of tribulation, the arrival of the Antichrist, which is where you get the concept of the abomination and the desolator, okay? Um, so that's the, the dispensationalist perspective is to, um, it might follow some of the other things like Cyrus could be the anointed one, um, but it's going to land on Jesus being the, the culmination of the 69 weeks. And then it's going to take that last week and remove it all the way to the end times. Okay. So there's some strengths. Uh, it continues in the tradition of messianic interpretation. Okay. It follows that perspective that says Jesus is the end point. He is the hope here in Daniel 9, which is great. Uh, similar, the characters do match up well to history. There, there is a good reason to believe that the person mentioned in verse 27 is the Antichrist. Um, there is good precedent for that, as we see in, um, uh, throughout the New Testament in this conversation of this character. So the characters do match up well. Um, and we see fulfillment connections with the New Testament. So the outcomes, uh, there are things there that we don't quite see even happening yet here as followers of Jesus that would be hoped for even further into the future. And so its strengths are that as well. So its weaknesses is that that large 2,000-year gap is not supported anywhere in this text. Um, So it takes some other conversations in dispensationalism and puts that here. You don't see any reason, really, to give that much of a gap just by looking at the text in front of us. Um, And I put this as a weakness, not that... I'm saying it's wrong, but it's just to say that this view of Daniel 9 requires a larger commitment to a theological system regarding the role of Israel in the church. What I mean by that is you could look at the other perspectives, and whether you are a dispensationalist or a covenant theologian or whatever, you can hold to the Antiochus view, you can hold to a messianic, symbolic, historical, whatever. But the dispensation view requires kind of a, a step into dispensationalism because it draws a distinction between the church and Israel um, and this what this age is about. So again, not to say that that's wrong, that that system is wrong. It requires a lot of a commitment to step into this uh, interpretation. That's also true to say that this view and the system is relatively new. Uh, Not just because something's new doesn't mean it's wrong. It just requires a little bit more of a discernment for us. There are three views. um, And again, there's many more, but those are our three big umbrellas. And you might be sitting there and there might be one you are leaning towards. Uh, You might be like, I don't know, these make sense to me. Uh, And you might have walked in today already uh, pretty well attached to one of these views. Uh, Maybe you knew the name of it and that's what you're walking into. Or maybe you didn't, but you start reading like, yeah, that's what I'm holding on to. And that's okay. This is is one of those things where I think good, enjoyable conversation should come from this. Not angry, fist up, die on the hill conversation should come from this. I think biblical prophecy should lead to fun enjoyable conversations. And so we hold these loosely. Um, now, as, as someone who's teaching this, I, I want to be honest about my own perspective and maybe even help people um, just to say, hey, this is what I think. 
Um, so if I were uh, at gunpoint and was told to, to pick one of these, uh, I would cheat. I would cheat, and I would double dip. Um, I think the Antiochus view holds, holds well to the events described. I think the way that those events line up really well makes sense to me. Uh, and it feels like maybe that's what Daniel's being told for his people to look towards. And though it's not a story that gets told in, in our um, scripture, the, the Maccabean revolt and everything surrounding that, I think it was important for that time that, that they were reminded that, that God was still doing something, that God was still working through his people. And through all of that is the great setup to Jesus. And so my double dipping is then I would also say, but I, I think there's a messianic implication to all this as well. Like those six outcomes clearly are only fulfilled through Jesus. And that's what we're hoping for and seeing his accomplishments done through that. And I think uh, prophetic scripture can be used uh, over and over again to point to other things. So it could be used to, to talk about Antiochus and all that. And it can also be used to talk about Jesus and what he does as an anointed one who gets cut off uh, and sets these outcomes out for his people. So that's, that's personally where I would land. Uh, and I would love to, if you, if you want to talk more after this, uh, and I would love to share resources. I had to, I had to do a lot to get to this text uh, today. So, um, so that's not for me to say if you hold the dispensationalist view that I think you're wrong. I just, I just don't land on that. But um, I hold all this loosely, and I think that's what comes to this, what, now what? Um, prophecy calls us to humility. Um, prophecy can, can pull us in two directions. It can pull us into pride. It can pull us into feeling like we have the answers, I mean, that, right? If, if we feel like we know how the numbers should add up and what things should exactly happen, there is a sense of pride that prophecy can lead us into. So we have to go the other direction. We have to go in towards humility and say, you know, I this is hard to understand. And I think that's why God does it that way. I think it calls us to humility, that even in God's insight for us and his revelations to us of what will happen and what he will do, there's still a little bit of guessing and there's still a little bit of going to, to him for direction and not feeling like we can figure this out on our own apart from him. It calls us to humility to say, okay, you've given us these words, but God, we have to seek you and seek your understanding in this text and what you're doing. Um, each interpretation, whichever one you, whichever one you land on, the Antiochus, the Messianic, the dispensationalist, whatever, it's going to cause us to recognize God's work within our world, that God is doing something, and that God is always thinking ahead and always planning and always um, has his people in mind whether it's the church, whether it's Israel, he has a people in his mind, and he has a goal, and he has a desire. This overall message is that God's dealing uh, with sin seriously and justly. He was dealing with the sins of his people seriously and justly, but he will bring about relief, even if the process is long, and if it's difficult, God is going to bring grace and forgiveness and love, and you and I recognize that is found in Jesus whether this passage is specifically about him or whether it's about some other events that set him up, uh, it's all about him and it's all pointing towards him and all those outcomes and hopes are found in Jesus and we know that. Um, and I, I just I think that's where we're always supposed to go to here with prophetic literature. So 
Um, let me pray for us. If you have questions or want to talk to me after, I'll throw my mask on and I'll be back there. So uh, let's pray. Father, I, I, th- I thank you for this, this text. Um, Lord, may these things humble us. Lord, in our confusion, may we turn to you. And Lord, may we trust you that your spirit leads us into truth. It leads us into discernment, into wisdom. Lord, uh, we, we thank you. Um, we thank you for things like these. We thank you that you are within history and you make things happen. You are an active God. You are a caring God. And Lord, you love your people. And Lord, even when we don't deserve it, even when uh, we should be repenting like Daniel is doing for his people, you love us and you give us grace and mercy and we thank you for that. So we love you and certainly we pray, amen. Thank you guys. We'll be back uh, next week. Cody Staver will be here to talk through uh, Daniel 10 and 11. So I told you, I gave people all the big texts. So he'll be walking through Daniel 10, 11. And then after that, I'll be teaching 12. That'll wrap up our series and beyond. So it's good to see you guys. I'll be in the back. <laughs>